All right. We are back. Back for part two. Back for, this is kind of part two, but it's kind of its own thing. But I also want to point out that you would not call the 19th century groups that we discussed cults. And now you're like part two cults. <laughs> so. I mean. What, what's I don't that? know. So I, want, I really do want to get into that today. Like what sets. Yeah. These folks apart that we're going to talk about from the 19th century, where we call it. It's like pornography. I can't define it, but I know it when I see it. Know it when I see it. But you don't think who we talked about last week, like some of the groups we talked about, the Oneida, whatever, you don't think that those were cults? Maybe. Okay. I'm excited to get into this because today we are really talking about some for sure cults. (laughs) Yes, it's cults. Um, yeah, today we're going to be in cults in the 20th century, um, in the United States specifically. We might kind of branch out later and do something where we talk about kind of global cults and cults in other places. Um, but yeah, it should be fun. Um, I've updated the website, so for some reason I forgot to put the baseball episode on the website. It was on all our streaming stuff. So if you if you subscribe via Apple Podcast or something like that, you got it. But if you looked on our website, it wasn't there. It is actually there now. Um, that being said, please do subscribe. If you listen to our podcast on a platform like Apple Podcast or Spotify, please subscribe. Um, also, go to our website, leave comments. We are actually going to um, really be using our, our listeners' comments a lot more for what content we do. And a listener wants us to... Uh, talk about the Know Nothings. Uh, it's a party in the 19th century in the United States. So next week, our episode is going to be on kind of lesser-known political parties in the late 18th or and 19th century in the United States. It should be really interesting, and um, definitely we can set up for a part two of that when we talk about the same thing in the 20th century. But uh, it should be fun. Yeah. All right, we're ready to get started. Let's do it. Welcome to An Incomplete History. I'm Hillary. And I'm Jeff. And we're your hosts for this weekly history podcast. So... How's the weather? Nice today, but boy, was it crazy a couple days I ago. I was really worried about you two days ago. Yeah, we had a really, really bad storm. Uh, poof, flooding, tornadoes, lightning, thunder, power outages. We lost power a couple times. Um, every time the power goes out, the kids scream, so that's fun. Uh, you know, it was just, <laughs> it was just uh, it was wild, you know, and it was in the middle Did of the you- day. I mean, did you have the kids and the cats and the dogs and everybody in the bathroom? Everybody all all hold up. Yeah. I mean, we didn't get like a tornado. Um, so they have like warnings and watches. We were under a watch, not a warning. So we weren't, we were all like safe, but we weren't in the tornado shelter, but we were ready to go if we needed to, but it's just yeah. wild. And then today it's like, sunny and beautiful and you would never even know that there was bad weather two days ago it's just you know how it goes here what about you guys how is it going over there getting ready for summer may gray is here 
So we get a thing called the marine layer rolls in in the morning and the evenings. The uh, coastal yeah. yeah, the coastal eddy. It's here. Mm-hmm. It's like it's here. <laughs> we get some sunshine from about uh, about eleven a.m. in the morning till early afternoonish before the clouds come back in. It's already they're already gone. It's already getting cloudy again. It's a little before two p.m. So. Well, it's right on time because here well, we, we call are it in May early gray May. and June gloom. Right. Um, it's funny because tourists, those are the worst two months for you to come to San Diego. Well, but it's funny because they say that the best time to go on vacations is um, May and November because it's kind of like the hook, like the shoulders or whatever is what they'll mm-hmm. call it of tourist season. And I, I saw that as like a, you know, information on a travel blog, like this is the best time to travel. And I'm like, not to San Diego. Um, May and San Diego November's is the good. best month. November's good. Yeah. But November's May good. is not, not always the best time to it's, go. It can be some of our chilliest weather and it's cloudy. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. So uh, 20th century cults. So you asked this question, what separates a cult from a fringe religion? Or from a utopian community, a utopian which to community. me is like a is a euphemism for cult. Well, I think the examples I'm going to bring up today, and I know the examples you're going to bring up today, all have a charismatic person at the center. Yeah, there are charismatic people at the center of Oneida. But I mean like one charismatic figure. What I would say sets them apart is violence. Okay. Uh, that's because I, I was thinking a lot about this question throughout the, the past week since we talked. And I mean, not all cults are violent and not all, you know, but um, I are think all for me. apocalyptic? Uh, yeah, I think so. Yeah. I know too. Yeah. I think maybe that's a thing. If your ideology centers around apocalyptic ideas, mm-hmm. you might be a cult. You might be a cult and a charismatic leader. And the big one, here's the big difference. <clears throat> and so I will give in and say, I think it's different. In say like the Oneida community, you were free to come and go. Most yes. of the cults that I looked at for today, which are mostly late 20th century, meaning like last half of the 20th century, um, you couldn't leave. I mean, that, and so to me, that's a big difference where it's like, you're trapped. You don't have free will anymore, really. Mm-hmm. So I guess that that could be a really big difference too. So if you, so if your ability to freely leave is impinged, then it's a cult. And yeah. I think that's the thing is there are warning signs and a lot of groups that kind of deal in deprogramming people who've been involved in cults talk about that. There are clear warning signs that your loved one may be in a cult if blah, blah, blah. If, right. One, well, that's another thing is like being cut off from family and friends and stuff. Um, that's also a good indicator of cult behavior or, um, yeah. So I, I guess there is a difference. Um, and especially when, when we're talking about the late 20th century, but what I would say that binds these two eras together, where you start seeing all these utopian communities pop up and then all these cults pop up is that there's a huge disruption societally 
-hmm. When we're talking in the 19th century, there was a lot of anxiety about the marketplace revolution, which we talked a little bit about last week. There's anxiety about the move from agrarian societies into cities. There's anxiety about immigration. And so you start to see people kind of branch off trying to do their own thing. I think when we start seeing cults pop up in the late 20th century, it also has a lot to do with civil disruptions, um, the civil rights movement, the Vietnam War, um, the free speech movements at you know Berkeley, uh, college campuses across the United States. Uh, there's a lot of societal disruption and I think a lot of anxiety that stems from that that makes people search like it kind of sends people into an existential crisis where they're searching for meaning or they're searching for a utopia or peace uh, set out from what they see as the more chaotic social environment. Would you say that that's fair? Yeah. Yeah. And I think I'm looking at my examples. I have three specific examples. Uh, I think that applies on some level to all three, although one of them is a little bit of an outlier. The what other are your two, examples? I'm curious because I also want to point out to everybody, like we don't really talk about what we're going to research. And I and at first, like I'm a real type A personality. So I get all like, oh, I don't know. We were not, I don't know what we're going to talk about. But it ends up kind of being cool because we don't really know. We give ourselves a really broad theme and then we go off and then we just have this organic conversation live basically so what are your three because i don't know well how many do you have i have four okay so give me one of yours first okay manson family i manson family also all right jim jones jim jones yes got him branch davidians yes and those are my three and And heaven's gate Gate. see i knew you were going to do heaven's gate because you're a san diego gal yeah, you got to seven. That's one of my earliest memories um, of like being had, aware of the news. We had some friends here, and at one point I said, "Do you want to go see the, the, the Heaven's Gate House?" It is. It's and like, what are you talking about? It's where all those weirdos like put the sneakers on. Like they were like, "Oh yeah, let's go see it." I'm like there it is. <laughs> wow! Wow! Yeah, I mean, I didn't know it was a tourist attraction, but. What I found interesting about I don't think it is. I think I made it into a you tourist. tourist. <laughs> it's like because you get tired of taking people to the same places, and you're like, I want to go like weird places. Balboa Park. Bah. We're going to the Heaven <laughs> we'll Gate. Go to those two. Yeah, let's go see a cult location. We're catching the Hailbop Comet. Yeah. Um, interesting that we picked that you picked all three that I picked, and then you added this extra. I will say this. I think the Manson thing is this weird outlier. It's like the thing that doesn't quite belong with the other three. Well, and I would almost argue that it's not, it's a cult, but it's, it's It's different. It's something else because it's smaller and there isn't a larger purpose really. I mean, I, I don't know. I read Helter Skelter years ago and then I, you know, kind of revisited it for today's episode. And every time I read about it, I'm so confused. Like it doesn't ever make any sense to me. And, but it does. I mean, it is cult, right? Because it's like charismatic leader who also, he thinks he's Jesus. Charlie Manson thinks he's Jesus. Um, what I want to know is why is he arrested and spending his life in prison? 
Well, let's start with the Mansons. Let's start with the Mansons. Let's, let's start with the Mansons. I mean, here's the, this is a troubled youth. He's first just all, gotten out of prison. First of all, he is definitionally a bastard, meaning legally his mother and father were not married. And in fact, his mother has to sue for paternity. I love that this is pertinent, but it is. It is. I think it caused him a bit of a troubled youth, like you said. I think he has this really messed up family life as a child. Mm -hmm. And the group he assembles later becomes known as the family. And I think part of that is him trying to construct the family life he, he wanted. Well, one thing that I notice about all these cult leaders, though, is the sexual component of it. They all want to have, you know, this sexual dominance or access to all of the people within their cult, all the followers. And a lot of times this goes crosses gender and sexuality, right? Like it's just they want access to every single one of their followers sexually. And what's the one that? What's the cult that just got in? They just did the documentary about Nexium. Nexium. That whew. so there's a documentary on HBO called The Vow, which is a several part series about this cult. That's like an ongoing situation where the leader just got arrested. Um, but he also he had like sexual access to all of the women, um, and I think actress from Smallville was involved in that, right? And she recruited people actually into it. Yeah, she sure did. And the guy who um, made the film, What the Bleep Do We Know About Quantum Physics? He was one of the main leaders. No. Yeah. (laughs) I love that film. Well, he's out and he's like, he's railing against it now. Like he's fighting really hard against it. Like who's the actress who does all the stuff against Scientology now? Oh, Leah Remini. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of like that. That's another cult. Oh, see, we didn't even go there. But the Manson family, sorry, what? (laughs) We're going to be all over the place today, I think, because this is just so exciting and interesting. At one point in Manson's youth, he is in Indianapolis, which I think is a great intersection with Jim Jones. Yeah, it is. And they're around the same time period. I know. Right? What's what's in the water? I don't know. I don't know. Um, but so he has a troubled youth, like you said, Charlie Manson, he ends up going to prison. He gets out of prison. When he's nine years old, he says he sets, uh, he sets his school on fire. Yeah. And Jim Jones, when he was a little kid killed animals. So there's a, there's also a crossover there, but you know, serial killers do this kind of stuff too. So it's Mm -hmm. like. Jeffrey Dahmer. Right. There's a definite overlap in, and I'm I'm not a psychologist, obviously, but like there's something going on there where we need some mental help for what's, you know, like there's signs, there's warning signs. If your kids are killing animals, you may want to institute. (laughs) We have bad bad news and worse news for you. Your child's either going to be a serial killer or a cult leader. (laughs) I think I'd prefer that my child to be the cult leader because at least, you know, leadership right but, but the cult leader ends up being a killer usually it's true that's true so um yeah the but morning signs this- were there well and he didn't go to school he was involved in theft and all this stuff um but he gets sent to a boys school uh it's for male delinquents and it's run by uh catholics priests um you kind of wonder what wanted to happen there yeah 
I mean, I, that's probably he reaching, talks, but, but he never, but he never says anything about that. And I think right. as explicit as he was about other things, he would have, um, said something. Although later in his life, when he's in Petersburg, Virginia, a federal reformatory, three of the offenses he has are classified as homosexual acts. Right. I mean, I think that he is much like Jim Jones is bisexual. Although Jim Jones says he was the most heterosexual person you could ever meet. And that's like a quote from him, Mm -hmm. which we can get into, but um, so there's, uh, you know, and I don't know, I don't want to necessarily label it like negatively, but perhaps a sexual deviance here, um, you know, more inclinations toward violent acts, um, kind of just living outside the lines in terms of. Well, I think that's the key. I think it's not necessarily that he is or is not having homosexual sex. I think it's how did that, how is that framed? And it, he always seems to be like aggressive in these things to the point where with women, it gets classified as rape. Mm -hmm. And I wonder I wonder if what he did in the school back in the the mid fifties happened now, if what he did then would have been classified as rape now. I think most things men did in the 1950s might be classified now. Um, No, you're right. And so you have these early indicators of his behavior. He's living outside of the lines. He's, you know, kind of performing all these deviant acts. He gets out of prison and he goes where to Berkeley. Mm-hmm. And it's so interesting to me, you know, he gets released in, out of prison in 1967 and he finds himself in the absolute epicenter, I would say, of a cultural movement in the United States during this time. You've got the free speech movement going on, you've got civil rights, you've got women's rights, you've got Vietnam War protests. And so much of that unease is happening right in Berkeley. And so he meets a woman who is working at the library at Berkeley, right? And he moves in with her and kind of starts this little commune. Um, Was it his wife? Did they get married? Well, yes. Mary Brunner. So 1967, this is his release date from the second time he was in prison. I mean, the interesting note is he had spent half of his life in prison or institutions. That is that is really interesting when you think about it in that way, right? He's very young at this point. 32 years old, and he spent over 16 years of his life in either formal prisons or kind of these... Institutionalized. Institutionalized, yes. Um, so most of the women he attracts are... Uh, most of the people he attracts are women. And they're young women, although he is married. And she was not so fond of that initially. Right. He, he marries this woman, Mary Brunner, and he starts bringing in other women to live with them like a commune. And she's kind of not so happy about it at first, but eventually he kind of talks her into it. And within a couple of years, they already have over a dozen women living with them. So it's also- him and 19 women. It's also important to note that he he did not audition for the monkeys and get rejected. That is not the reason all this happens. 
that is like a rumor, right? I mean, he is a musician, it's, so he learned he how to play musician. show guitar. He's in, in jail. He's in prison when right. the audition was supposed to have happened. Right. So that's that's false rumor. But a lot of the people he attracts, particularly the men, have connections to Hollywood. Yet he ends up having a lot of really good connections to people. And again, that's an overlap with Jim Jones too. Jim Jones had huge connections. Mm -hmm. Um, And so he's charismatic, not just to bring women into his realm of, you know, this communal, uh, I guess, harem that he's created, but he's charismatic. The Manson family. The Manson family. But he's charismatic in getting people's attention who are like record producers and, you know, movie stars, uh, directors, right? Like he has a lot of, high-end um, connections with the music world, et cetera. And I think that's really interesting because how did he do that? I mean, he must be very charismatic. Or well, so he's in the right place at the right time. So he ends up in San Francisco in 1967 in the Haight-Ashbury. It's the summer of love. And he starts kind of preaching this idea that Satan and Jesus would come together at the end of the world to judge humanity. And he starts, and he is very charismatic, evidently. Um, and he's able to attract these people. And um, he teaches all of them um, that they are reincarnations of the original Christians. And he never actually, he evidently never actually says it, but there's a strong implication that he's saying he's Jesus reincarnated. Well, he he has said it almost many different times, right? I Did mean, he, he actually kind of, say it, though? Well, he would present himself oftentimes as uh, Christ-like, I think. I mean, so he started calling himself... Um, like my will is I am man's son, right? Well, like his he would name like is, take yeah, out his, his Yeah, his name is Charles Willis Manson, and he would explain he would pronounce it Charles's will is man's son. Right. He would like take it really like elongate it. So he was kind of saying he was the son of man or something. I mean, he he definitely thought he was special. Do I think he thinks he was Jesus? I don't know, but I think he thinks he was very special. Um, and I don't think he would refute it um, because the family itself, I mean, I, I know that there have been people who've written biographies or um, autobiographies who were involved in this. Um, and then even the prosecutor who wrote Helter Skelter Vince Bugliosi says that the family was convinced that he was a manifestation of Christ. And that's why they followed him because they did feel that he was divine. So he must've been telling them that unless they just said it all themselves. Right. Right. So then what happens? So they roam all around. In a hippie bus. In a hippie bus. bus. Yeah. And he kind of like preaches to people and he preaches about communal living and, um, he's, so he's like a musician and a philosopher and he's kind of well-connected and he's got all these women following him. So he's, he's almost like a bit of a celebrity of sorts. 
Um, there was one incident that I read about where he had this really fancy hippie van that he would travel around and he got out and was preaching one day to a group of people and some, you know, about communal living and about like not wanting um, earthly possessions and stuff. And someone in the audience criticized him and said, well, you've got this really, really nice van. And he tossed him the keys and the guy drove off and he just, he seemed unbothered by it. So that ended up attracting more people to him. Like, wow, this guy's the real deal, you know? So he had this charismatic air about him. He was able to draw people in to listen to him speak. Um, he kind of goes around unbothered. He travels a lot of different places. He lives a lot of different places. He lives amongst celebrities. He has access to a lot of these people to the point where he was walking up to Sharon Tate's home a couple of months before the murders and was just kind of inquiring like, hey, is some so-and-so here? So it's like he has like he's accessing this world and moving in and out of it. Like I could never imagine going and ringing a celebrity's doorbell. You well, know, but he was in this world. He babysits grandpa from the Munsters' children. He babe he was a babysitter? He I, I don't Yikes. think he was a babysitter, but at some point Al Lewis is the actor who plays grandpa on the Munsters. He babysit their children several times, and Al Lewis says he was a nice guy. There were a lot of people who said, like, hey, yeah, I thought he was kind of nice. <laughs> but then Gary Stromberg, who's with Universal. Is a producer with Universal Studios. He actually says Manson's very got he's got this great personality, but his biggest ability, his greatest ability, is he can read somebody's weakness and then manipulate them. Mm. Well, not so he knows how why to he had so people. many women following mm -hmm. him. Okay, well, you know, there are people though who also said he was creepy because um, Sharon Tate said that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, oh, he's a creepy guy. Did you see that creepy guy last night? Did he go back to the guest house? Something along those lines. So yeah. there are some people who find him creepy. I think people were either drawn to him because of that char charisma or they were kind of like scared of him because of the charisma, right? But it was always the charisma that like set people one way or the other of like being drawn to or kind of like off put by it. Um but they, they travel all around and, um, you know, again, they're just moving in and out of these worlds. But then he starts getting really preachy about what he says is going to be an, there's an impending race war. Mm -hmm. And so from the historical perspective, I think this is really important to pinpoint what moment we're talking about here, right? We're right at the throes and the height of the civil rights movement, um, you know, desegregation happening across the United States. And this is also intricately tied to Jim Jones's story and Vietnam and Vietnam, which I don't even know. <laughs> I don't think we're going to get to all of these cults today. Um, but the point is that like, it's coming at this really specific moment, right? Where there's a lot of tension and, and Charles Manson is going around preaching and saying, this tension is going to end up resulting in a race war and I'm going to start it. And so that's what he, when he like orders you know, his followers to go murder um, the people at the Tate residence. So Sharon Tate was eight and a half months pregnant. Um, he killed her and I think three others, or was it four others? At the LaBianca yeah. La well, murders. He doesn't kill them. No, he sends people to kill them. And that's my question. 
That's the question I started with. Like he never kills anybody. And I'm not I'm not defending well, I think he's him, very, but I think he's very careful and crafty to make it so that he technically doesn't kill anyone. Well, he's not even there. Right, but he definitely told them to do it. And what he wanted them to do was this. He wanted to frame it and make it look like who had killed these people. He tried to make it seem like people from the black community came and killed them. Because yep. he to- he instructed his followers, steal the wallet from the from the murder victim, go drop it off in a black neighborhood. Hopefully a black person will pick it up, use a credit card, and then they'll get nabbed for the murders. And then this will start the race war. Why does he want a race war? I don't know. Why is he so bent on this? Because he's he believes that it will create the end of the world and this coming together of Satan and Jesus to judge humanity. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Uh, Then he kills Gary Allen Hinman, or the, excuse me, the family kills Gary Allen Hinman, right. music director at UCLA. Um, and he had befriended members of the Manson family, so they knew him. Um, Most of the people who got killed had had previous encounters with him. Encounters, or had at least been in the vicinity. So I think the LaBianca murders, was, they were next door they live next door to a party that the Manson family had attended some, right. some months back. Well, Tate happened to occupy a house that they were renting that had been rented by somebody else that Manson was right. actually trying and to And that's see. who he was looking for the night that he went to go see her um, mm-hmm. because he was looking for um, a man who was a music producer named Melcher, right? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's almost like a mistake in a way. Like, I don't know why they targeted this eight and a half month pregnant woman who was married to Roman Polanski, which mm-hmm. is another aside who happened to be in Europe at the time. Um, this was before he was banned from the United States. These were very brutal murders too. Very brutal. And there were messages left behind written in pig, pig, culture. Pig, um, uh, yeah. Yeah, Susan Atkins admitted to writing pig using Tate's blood on a wall or on the door. Well, and the the very explicit instructions from Manson was that every person who was there had to actively take part in the murder. Mm -hmm. And so they made sure that every woman had had wielded a knife and had stabbed them. And so they found, you know, in some of the murder victims that they had been stabbed hundreds of times but that many of the stab wounds occurred post-mortem. And it's because they went around ensuring that each person picked up a weapon and participated. But then that ended up being a defense for some of the defendants and saying, well, they inflicted wounds post-mortem. So they actually weren't responsible for it. Um, And a lot of them, I mean, kind of weren't held to account in the way that you would think they would be. And the, the blame always rested on, on the ringleader, on the cult leader. being Manson. Well, but most of them, many of them do end up serving prison time and all this stuff, but, but there's so much loyalty they continue to have to him after all of this takes place. Right. He tries to represent himself mm-hmm. and the judge ends up saying, you're not mentally fit to represent it yourself. And so he carves an X on his head. And says, 
I'm Xing myself out from society because I have not been able to represent myself. And then the next days in court, his followers come into court with X's on their heads carved. And then he changes it to a swastika. Later, he changes that carving to a swastika, yes. But that's what the original carving in his head was set to symbolize or represent. Did you know that Manson studied Scientology briefly while he was in jail? Gosh, that makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? This is in 61. Um, This is when it was first starting. Right. This is when I think L. Ron Hubbard's still alive. Um, yeah. In 1961, he lists his religion as Scientology. Oh, that's interesting. So not only did he study it, but he he completed 150 hours of auditing. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Okay. So this is new information for me. I like that. Which connects him even further, firmer with Hollywood. I mean, this is the thing. His connections with Hollywood are so firm. So, I mean, the interesting thing is I think, Manson's an interesting case. It is a cult, kind of, but not in the scale we're going to talk about with the other ones. Right. And I, you know, it almost just seems like when I think about the Manson family, it's just like they were all on LSD. They were, and and lots of other types of drugs. Well, the two women that Dennis Wilson picks up are like high as kites. Well, and they spend all of their time high as kites. Mm -hmm. And so... To me, it's like a violent, drug-induced, you know, violent rampage rather than this is an established cult with rituals and a purpose or even a discussion of a purpose. I mean, because I don't, you know, I don't even buy the race war stuff as being the purpose for the cult. No, I don't think that's, I think think it was a ruse. I think it was a ruse. And, And, you know, they're just always drugged up. So it's like, how can you... I don't know. How can you account for that behavior other than to say like these people were on LSD for like what years? Yeah. They're sexually subservient to this man who he would pimp out these women too. He ended up with about 50 different followers, mm-hmm. per, all mm-hmm. mostly women. I think there was like one other guy, that guy Tex. Um, but most of them were women and he would end up, they would stay at big ranches and stuff like that. And he would say, Oh, you know, my harem, you know, they'll, you know, be at your disposal sexually if you let us stay here for free. And so they ended up staying with this 80-year-old man for a while. And the women were pimped out to this 80-year-old man in exchange for a place to live. And they're on drugs. So it's like, it, it's to me, yeah, it's a cult, but it's like, it's more just like violent and abusive behavior by someone who's taking advantage of other people who are on drugs. Because I don't know if the people who joined had a firm set of beliefs. And I think that that's the difference because when we talk about say Jim Jones or Heaven's Gate or the Branch Davidians, they all have very firm beliefs that are somewhat rooted in religion or science or something. I don't think the people who were part of the Manson family had a firm set of beliefs or an objective. They were just lost and on drugs. So I do think that there's a difference. I'm just not quite sure how to, how to, I guess, separate it. <laughs> right. Well, let's, so I'm looking at our time. All right. So we're definitely going to have a part two of 20th century cults or cults in 20th century America. Uh, Cause there's no way, I mean, we're going to do Jim Jones and that's going to put us over the hour mark right there. It's we're, we're going over the hour. So right next week, instead of the political party thing, we're going to continue this. We're going to talk about the branch Davidians and then heaven's gate. Yeah. 
because we never, it's funny we never announce what our next episode's gonna be and the one time we did we're like oh psych Two it's weeks yeah now. it's like yeah i should have known all the notes i have i was like this is gonna take us forever and i don't want us to shortchange the branch davidians and heaven's no. gate because there's so much to talk about there well, and what's good to talk about there, it'll connect to our conspiracy theories episode, yes. and that'll be really good. So we'll we yeah. can save that for next week. But let's yeah. let's dive into Jim Jones. Jim Jones. So let's today. go back to Indiana. God damn Indiana! We love the people in Indiana. Um, Saint Elmo's Steakhouse in Indianapolis. It's fantastic. Saint Elmo's send me some cocktail sauce in exchange for me mentioning you. Um, best shrimp cocktail in the world. And it's really? so weird because it's the middle of the United States. You always tell me never to eat seafood in the middle, in a landlocked area. Okay, but this is the exception. Okay. St. Elmo's shrimp cocktail. It's so hot. We're not sponsored, but we should be. We should be. They should sponsor me with a lifetime supply of their shrimp cocktail sauce. <laughs> uh, so Jim Jones. Um comes out of um, a kind of a um, an interesting family, right? His dad is a veteran of World War One. His dad is a clan member. Disabled. His dad is a clansman. Yes. His mother is significantly younger than his father. His father, yeah. Um, and what's what I find is really interesting is. Some of his family is very religious, evangelical, and then his mother is not at all. Um, but he always grows up, he grows up with this like thirst for religious knowledge and truth. And he, he really early on shows an interest in exploring religion. And um, exploring communist leaders. Well, yes. <laughs> I mean, he, so he's, here's the thing, Jim Jones, at least initially before he goes to California, everything he does seems to be out of good. Like he actually wants to make the world a better place. That's what's so wild to me when you read about him. So he hated his father for being a Klansman and had a major falling out with his dad when his dad wouldn't allow a black friend over at the house. And he goes on to get married and adopt several children of different races and was one of the first white people to adopt a black child. He was, um, I think they were the first black, first white couple to adopt a black child in Indiana. I think so in Indiana, yeah. And so he but was he, all about integration and he worked really hard to um, kind of create more uh, racial harmony and fought ardently against his father's beliefs and the way that he had been raised. And he had been raised in abject poverty during the great depression. He lived in a shack. He didn't have plumbing. Um, but he goes on to like, he is trying to do good. And the way that he goes about it, he says, well, I have to go through the church, mm -hmm. even though he's not, he's not religious. And later in his life, I mean, right before he kills himself, um, he says, I'm an atheist. But he well, thought that that was the best way to penetrate a community. Is so, so 1956, he founds the People's Temple in Indianapolis. Which was a Methodist church, right? Well, it's he was in the Methodist, and then he spun off and made this own church. 
And a few years later, the temple joins the Disciples of Christ. And Jones is formally ordained in 1964 under the Disciples of Christ. But the People's Temple, some of the things he does, he travels to Harlem and visits this guy, George Baker, who's known as Father Divine. Mm-hmm. And Father Divine has this church called the Universal Peace Mission Movement that he started uh, after World War One, And um, Divine was very influenced by Marcus Garvey's idea uh, about economic empowerment in the Black community. Uh, but the way he kind of does it is everything's communally owned. Like there's no private property. It's all communally owned. Everything's supposed to be for the good of the community. Now, Father Divine goes a step further and says he's God. And that's going to reappear in Jim Jones eventually. But Jones takes those lessons back and his church becomes this real source of desegregation in Indianapolis. And his congregation ends up becoming predominantly black Americans, something like six. But he makes a lot of enemies in Indianapolis. Yes, yes, who are not interested in any form and of they, they And they really attack him. Mm-hmm. Um, eventually, Jones kind of grows disillusioned with this. And he also seems to be paranoid about the Cold War and nuclear annihilation. When he's also a communist. He's a communist, and yes. he and he's really upset about McCarthyism and all this happening in the 1950s. And he's trying to find a way to be a communist in an integrated society. And he's like, "I can't live in the United States." So he goes to Brazil, Brazil to family. Well, because he reads this Esquire article that talks about the secret, the safest places in the world in case of a nuclear war. Yeah, and he starts scouting it out, and he hears, you know, your church is actually going under because you're not here. Uh, you know, there's a lot of language barriers for him, of course, in Brazil, he doesn't speak Portuguese. Um, and so he ends up going back to save his church, but it's like, we've got to get out of, of Indianapolis. We've got to leave here. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so they move to Redwood, California, They relocate to Northern California, always the culprit, always the culprit with the hippies in the, in this area. I mean, hum- this Humboldt. Era. Humble. Right. Yeah. It's kind of weird. <laughs> it's a little it's a little weird up there. I was Northern California and Southern California honestly should be two separate states. And I, I hold firm to that. But they're very different. Um anyway, you get a lot of this happening around the same time. And then again, there's the overlap with the Manson family because they end up relocating out to California in 1967, which is the same year that Manson gets out of prison and starts his little commune harem right so there's a there's an overlap here and they actually end up getting involved in san francisco then yeah well and they get really he gets involved in san francisco politics Mm -hmm. the mayor willie brown loves him um talks very highly of him he's um he becomes um a politician of of sorts himself right he's appointed to um, a position in san francisco right to be something with housing right well so they they move into san francisco and pretty quickly by 1971 they're able to buy uh, an abandoned synagogue in the city um and set it up and jones starts giving money to 
Police Widows, the NAACP, Ecumenical Peace Institute, and he would make his church members go out and volunteer for various organizations across the city. And very quickly, politicians see this as a powerful tool. That if they can get the People's Temple on their side, they can immediately transmit their message to a large and actually pretty diverse group of people because it's not just poor people of color who are in this church, like had been the case in Indianapolis. Right. You've got middle class people who are here. Yeah. And, you know, he gets these connections at a local and national level. He starts talking to these, you know, kind of high level politicians. Um, he meets with, uh, Walter Mondale with the first lady, Rosalind Carter. Um, and he, he corresponds with these people often. And so he's bringing, he ends up well, getting a huge following of people into his. Right. Church. So 70 in 76, this rally, he engineers for Rosalind Carter, half the crowd at the rally. And this is when Jimmy Carter's running for president. Half the people in the crowd are from the people's temple. Right. Half of the crowd members. 75, he gets the mayor. He helps get the mayor of San Francisco elected, George Moscone. Mm-hmm. Uh, Moscone's assassinated several years later. Um, also good friends with Harvey Milk. Also good friends with Harvey Milk. Mm-hmm. And actually, Jones starts to make a lot of contacts within San Francisco's kind of emerging gay community. Mm-hmm. But the mayor knows that Jones has power appoints Jones to be the head of the city's housing authority commission. That's it. The housing authority commission. Yes. Willie Brown. I found the quote you wanted. Willie Brown says that Jones is like Martin Luther King, Angela Davis, Albert Einstein, and chairman Mao. Yeah. Mao Zedong all put together. What an endorsement. Um, so here's the genius is like Jones is really good at doing what he needs to, to make his people's temple very attractive and he does not ignore the press. The press actually him around. Well, when four reporters were being were in jail because they refused to to um, uh, disclose their sources for stories, mm-hmm. Jones helps. Uh, Jones has the People's Temple members go out and protest it. Right. So and he again, made, he's got thousands of followers at this point at his disposal. Well, here's the thing, and there's and now we go back after the Jonestown massacre. We go back, and they look and they say editors and publishers at these newspapers were so enamored by Jones and what he did for them specifically with the reporters, but more generally with the city, that they would quash stories that were already starting to raise issues about what's really going on in the People's Temple. Because there were some issues that have started coming up, right? Some some issues of drug abuse, sexual abuse, physical abuse, and they would. They would squash the stories because they loved him. I mean, they were almost as much under his spell, that charismatic mm-hmm. you know, cult leader spell that he obviously had as a lot of his followers. But the press became the press attention became too much for him. So I guess, you know, he was on drugs, right? I mean, he was on like barbiturates and stuff. Mm-hmm. When, yeah. when do you think he went from, I'm someone who wants to help the community and make the world a better place to, I, I'm a crazy cult leader and I want everyone dead. I mean, Cause I don't to know. me it doesn't I, make I, sense. I don't know. And I don't know if there's a clean moment where that happens. 
I know that once he realizes he can use the People's Temple to to basically get politicians to do almost anything he wants, mm-hmm. that's a level of power. Um, but here's the thing. Um, we know then he starts at meetings doing things like reading people's minds, healing cancer, predicting the future. I think this is the moment he's gone off the deep end. Right? Where he kind of gets this idea that he is Christ-like or something mm-hmm. or is divine. And it's the drugs, it's the attention, but it's also the paranoia. He's also very paranoid at this point and starts saying he needs to move out of the United States and starts mm-hmm. establishing very slowly this community, which became known as Jonestown. Um, and they end up relocating there. Well, so there's this article that gets published in August 1977 in New West Magazine. So you have a couple of reporters with the San Francisco Chronicle. One of the papers that had kind of quashed publishing critical stories about the People's Temple. Uh, Marshall Kilduff and Phil Tracy um, had created this story and, and they were, they had talked to people who had left the People's Temple. And they were kind of, it was an expose on the People's Temple. San Francisco Chronicle wouldn't publish it. Uh, but New West Magazine does, and it is explosive. And suddenly state legislators are like, oh, no, we have to like. We have to distance ourselves. This is, what is this? this Not is, everybody, though. Willie Brown doesn't. What Willie Brown doesn't, but virtually everyone else is like, oh, no, no. We, we yeah. can't do this. We've got to get away from this. Um, so. They make the decision to move to Jonestown, Guyana. Which is a, Guyana is a country down in South America. Um, Which is, this is a continuation of that whole thing about, this will be a safe place to survive. It borders Venezuela, right? The nuclear war, right? Yeah, this is a safe place to wait out the nuclear war. (laughs) Right. And to create a utopia. Right. And he ends up getting like what a thousand people to move there. With? Yes, he yeah. gets people to sell everything they own uh-huh. and give it to the People's Temple to relocate. And then it turns out that it's not so fun to live there. Well, so here's the thing: is very few people are able to escape. I mean, you, first of all, it's in the middle of nowhere. So it becomes very expensive to try to leave. Well, and their families start to become alarmed. And they, their families are actually contacting politicians, congressmen, mm-hmm. um, local, state, federal, right? I mean, there's letters on letters on letters for this thousand people who have relocated from the United States down into South America. And their families become very concerned for them. And they don't they don't have a means of leaving. Um, so then this culminates um, in a trip taken. Leo Ryan. Right. Leo Ryan. Yeah. Poor guy. Well, I mean, he was a representative and some of his constituents said, look, this guy, Jim Jones, has kidnapped our family members and taken them down to Guyana. And Leo Ryan's people like engineered a visit. So in 1978, Leo Ryan flies down, visits. During the visit, mm-hmm. everything seems to go fairly well. Well, they welcome them and everything. It looks like everybody's happy. 
Well, no. It does look like every superficially. Superficially. It looks like everybody's happy. Everybody's having a good time. But what ends up happening is somebody passes him a note at dinner. It's last night. I want to leave. Please help me leave. And so it's about 15 people who end up saying that they want to leave. And Joan says, yeah, okay, go ahead and leave. And so they're all getting ready to leave. And you've got an airplane right um, there that has the congressman on it, has reporters on it, has staffers on it. Um, It's a whole crew of people. It's not just Leo Ryan. And then you've got the dozen or so individuals who have said, I want to get out of here. Please help me. Um, And so they're about to leave that morning. And Jim Jones sends out some of his followers to open fire on the congressman and the people trying to leave um, on the runway before they're even able to leave. And it ends up that he's murdered along with several um, NBC cameramen who, who mm-hmm. caught some of the footage right before he was shot leading mm-hmm. up to it. So that's why we know what happened a bit. Mm-hmm. Too. I remember this as a child. I remember this playing out where you just, and everybody like, was just like, what is this? Oh, it's so scary. But things go so quickly at the end then. Um, that's happening out at the, this little airport, this runway back in Jonestown itself. I mean, first of all, he named the town after himself. Right. So that we tells you a that lot. He's devolved into some sort of mania. He says that these people who were leaving were going to lie and spread misinformation about the People's Temple, but that they would believe them. And inevitably, the government, the U.S. government, would come down and take children away from their parents and destroy the community. And he threatens the parents, too. He says... Because we're communists, they're going to come down, they're going to murder us, they're going to torture your children, they're going to imprison us. I mean, he gets really graphic in the threats. And you're, you're right, it happens lightning speed. Um, and so he basically tells everybody, we all have to kill ourselves right now. And he says, oh, we're not killing ourselves. Um, we're committing revolutionary suicide, is what he calls it. Um in order to, you know, he's arguing that the group should commit this revolutionary suicide as a message about, you know, their beliefs or why they're doing what they're doing. And that it's, he, you know, kept saying, don't be afraid. It's just one step, you know, into the, into a new dimension, into a new mm-hmm. world. And you've got over 300 children there who the parents feed their children this laced, Grape flavored drink, which is flavor aid, not Kool Aid. Well, so for the record, and and later investigations realized those barrels of cyanide had been brought into the compound much earlier. Yeah, so he had gotten a license to be a jeweler, and so he had been ordering cyanide for a very long time, like lots of barrels of it. Because when you're a jeweler, you use cyanide to clean gold, and so he had said, "Oh, I'm a jeweler. I need this cyanide for this reason," but. He had obviously been planning mm-hmm. and maybe not just to be prepared. He definitely, he definitely, no, I prepared. think he was planning. I you think, think he was from the start, he was planning to kill everybody. I think once he, I think once he goes to Jonestown, probably. Oh gosh. I thought he had had it like, well, in case of emergency. I mean, maybe. Right. Yeah. I mean, either way, he ends up killing a thousand people. Well, yeah. So, more than 900 people, including children, either voluntarily or forcibly take this cyanide-laced Kool-Aid. 
some Kool-Aid. You're giving so, Kool-Aid a bad name. I know. Got but when, very people upset say, about this. when people say don't drink the Kool-Aid, this That's is what they're referring to. Yes. This is a reference don't to Don't pay Jones attention. Term. Yeah. But it was not technically Kool-Aid. Here's the thing that really just steams me. He doesn't drink the Kool-Aid. No. He shoots himself. Yeah. What an ass. Like you couldn't have drank the Kool-Aid too? Like Hitler. I mean, it's terrible, isn't it? Like, and the death that these, so a lot of this is on film, right? I mean, there's, we, there's footage of this. We get, we get the following week, we get this aerial footage of hundreds of bloated, this is the tropical jungle. Yeah. Loaded bodies. A lot of times it'll be apparent with their arms over their children. Yes. And they, they, he encouraged families to like lay together and hold hands, but it's a violent death that happens. It's not a pleasant go to sleep and don't wake up. I mean, you get very, very sick. So there's people, he was watching this happen to the 909 people who, mm-hmm. who were drinking this cyanide laced, you know, fruit drink. Um, and he watched how violent the death was. And, and so he shoots himself instead of, you know, doing what he hit. He's a coward. Yeah. Oh God. It was so disgusting. At the end of the day. And he even killed his wife and a lot of his Mm -hmm. kids. Um, there were a few of his kids who happened to be out of town that day because they were playing like soccer or something for in a neighboring town. Um, and they came back to just this massacre um, and they had to go seek refuge, you know, with other family members who had escaped the cult earlier, other children who had escaped, um, because one of their daughters was estranged from them. Um, and they had said they had a lot of money. And then in their will, they said, um, you know, this needs to be donated to the communist parties and not a penny is to go to our traitor daughter. Mm-hmm. Um, so they, they had this, you know, fraught relationship with some of their children, but then the others who happened to just... I guess, miraculously escaped this mass murder. Um, They went and sought refuge with this other daughter who still, I believe, lived in San Francisco. Um, But, you know, speaking to just a larger situation here, I mean, he, 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 was he apocalyptic? Because we had talked about that earlier. I mean, this, the line between utopian and apocalyptic is pretty narrow. Because he wanted to go there because he thought there was going to be a nuclear war. And he yeah. thought that would be a safe place to be. And that he'd be part of the group that helps found a new society that's based on integration and all of these things with him at the head. Right. Now, one thing I do want to mention, and, and again, there's the overlap with all these cult leaders. It's always something sexual. Um, he had many mistresses and had fathered children from other women. Um, and he would, you know, just kind of have sex at his leisure um, with many different members of the group. And he would also have sex with men. And he is quoted as saying, I hate having sex and I hate having to do it, but I have to do it in order to make the men closer to me. And so I can impart my wisdom onto them. I don't want to do it, but I have to. What well, you, it's, this is the thing. Well, I mean, this is the thing. I think he uses sex as a way to control people. And um, I think every new woman who came to the compound had to be sexually available to Jim Jones. Mm. That was part of the kind of the agreement. And see, these are what these cult leaders do. I mean, 
most of the time, it's not women who are in charge of the cults. Right. Although Heaven's Gate, there's some interesting stuff there, which we'll get, yes. we'll get into. Well, and Branch Davidians. And Branch Davidians. But most of the time, it's like men are at the helm. They want free, unfettered sexual access to all of their members. And it ends up being just an abusive situation, sexually, emotionally, physically. That's what ends now, up happening. Now, here's the thing, though. There is a modicum of justice, not very much, but Larry Layton mm-hmm. at Jonestown. So he had been hiding on um, one of the planes, and he was a loyalist to Jim Jones, and he actually emerges with a gun and begins shooting those reporters and Representative Ryan as well. Leo La- Larry Layton is the only person who has tried, convicted, and sentenced in connection with Jonestown. And he's actually sentenced to life in prison. Um, small amount of justice, you're right. Small amount of justice. But I think if you really want to read something interesting, you can go to the FBI.gov. You can actually, via Freedom of Information Act, read their complete file on Jonestown. Oh. And it's well, very exciting. interesting. Yeah. Um. A lot of interesting details there. There's also a great American experience a little over 10 years ago um, had a really great episode they did on Jonestown. So if you're interested in learning a little bit more, but it's like, here's the thing is I think it's, it's the Manson family represents maybe the worst elements of the summer of love taken to their extreme, which is delusions brought about by drug use and all of this stuff. Jonestown represents taking this idea of utopia and creating a better world by any means necessary. And and Jim Jones is an advocate of this by any means necessary, taking it to kind of a ridiculous end. Um, And they're both so California. I mean, the great, the weird thing is, is both leaders start, in middle America, in Indianapolis. But at the end of the day- They make their way to where they're supposed to be. It's so California. Yeah. Well, there's Um, a lot of cults that crop up at this time that aren't as well known. uh You know, and a lot of them are like branches of religious groups that become like really insanely uh, evangelical in some ways and others. And, you know, people are being kidnapped and running away and- They're joining these cults and their families don't know where they are. And there's a lot of nomadic and communal participation at this time. Mm -hmm. And not all of them end in tragedy, right? I mean, some of them end in tragedy for individual families where they lose their kids. They don't know where their kid went. But these two instances, I think, are the most famous. And I'm glad that we got to break them down a little bit and, you know, talk about them. But there's a lot of this going on that doesn't end in murder or mass suicide. That's important to point out. And it's just Mm -hmm. kind of a symptom of this civil unrest, I think, that we started talking about in the beginning of the episode. So next time we're going to go a little bit later and talk about Heaven's Gate, which culminates in the 1990s and the Branch Davidians, which also culminates in the 1990s. So. And Branch Davidians, we might, I might have to bring up a little bit of some other, some militia movements to kind of we get have a little to. perspective for that. And again, it, it relates to the conspiracy episode. So I think that's good. Fantastic. This was fun, Jeff. Yeah. All right. Well, it. until next time, I'm Jeff. And I'm Hillary. Thanks for joining. <laughs>